1 John 5. 1 John chapter 5, verse 9. If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For this is the witness of God, which he has testified of his Son. He who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. He who does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed the testimony that God has given of his Son. And this is the testimony, that God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. Now we're going to come to a verse, and it's one of the verses in this book that states John's reason for writing. Please pay attention. Four different times in this book, John just flat out says, this is my reason for writing. This is why I am writing. He does it once in chapter one. He does it twice in chapter two. And now we're here in chapter five, five and he gives us the fourth reason for writing. There's not really a line of reasoning in this book. There's more of a circle of reasoning. He returns to themes, and then each time he returns to that theme, he deepens it and gives us more understanding of it. So here we are, and we're going to read the final purpose for the writing of this book from the Apostle John. One of the four reasons of writing, the final one. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. So notice that this reason for writing is twofold. That you may know that you have eternal life. And what was the second? That you may continue believing. Or you might put it, assurance of salvation, that you may be assured of your salvation, and that you would grow in the faith. If you are not a believer, this passage will speak to you. The Holy Spirit will use it to draw you to himself. He'll be speaking to you and to me about this truth that we can know that we have eternal life. Do you want to know that you're going to heaven? Do you want to be certain of that? Well, God tells you here that you can know. It also teaches you here, if you're not yet a believer, that once you put your faith in the Lord, there's a continuance of faith. Yes, there's a commencement. You've got to start somewhere. There's a day of salvation, but there's also a growing in the faith. There's a continuance of faith. Sometimes people wonder, like, how in the world am I ever going to live out this Christianity? How am I going to ever follow Jesus or keep his commandments? Well, that happens after you give your life to him. He gives you the strength. So if you're an unbeliever, this passage will speak to you. But isn't it written to the believer? So as you sit here today, if you're a child of God, he wants to use this passage to assure you of your eternal life, that you may know that you have heaven as your destiny, as your future. You don't just have to wonder or think to yourself, I hope I'm going to heaven. Is that a good feeling? To, to hope, and, and you are made up of feelings, partially like, boy, I really, I really hope I'm going to make it. This passage written to believers, true believers, so that they can have assurance of salvation, but also, once again, so that we can continue in the faith that he put in us in the first place. Believing is not just a set it and forget it way of life. It's learning to lean more and more upon the Lord. So, so you see the purpose 
of this section? Do you see the purpose of this book? Assurance of salvation and continuing in the faith. Go back to verse 9. It was what we read first. If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. So point number one, in this assurance and in this continuance of faith, trust the perfect witness. Think of how often you trust the testimony of a witness. A mere person has an opinion or has a perspective and you put your trust in it. I'm trying to figure out an electrical problem and I'm not great with wires. And I'm wondering, what do these colors mean? Is this the right gauge of wire? Is this gonna blow up after I wire it together? And I'm not really sure. What do I do? I look up a YouTube video like any other responsible person and sure enough, there's some guy there And he's telling me, this is how to wire it up. And I take his word for it. I I listen to the testimony of his witness, and I wire it up. I don't even know the guy. For all I know, he could be some psycho that's wanting to indirectly electrocute people, right? (laughs) But I receive his witness, and he's a mere man. I take his advice. I put it into place. I go with it. I'm out at the grill attempting to barbecue some chicken. I don't remember how long the chicken's supposed to be on one side. And I'm embarrassed to go ask my wife because she's told me before how many times it's supposed to be on that side. So what do I do? I Google it, right? And, and I don't know who put that on Google, but somebody's witness. It could just be a robot. It could be, I don't want her to think I'm stupid, right? <laughs> Actually, I should say, I don't want her to know I'm stupid. (laughs) And so I I look for some witness, and then I take that testimony, and I put it into place. I don't know if whoever put that advice on there is the king of the grill, or if there's some, like, insecure guy just like me who just sticks it on there. But I receive the witness, and I risk my chicken on the testimony of, of that witness. Now, we entrust pieces of our lives that are way more important than what I've mentioned to witnesses also, don't we? We entrust our investments, our careers, our health, even our children. And we do assess credibility to some extent, and we're thinking about expertise and experience and all of that. Some people have been sentenced to to decades in prison or even life in prison based on the testimony of one human witness. So the Bible is saying in verse 9, are you tracking with what he's saying? We receive the witness of men. The witness of God is that much greater. You believe people to some extent. You place your trust in their witness. And I know there's a big difference between barbecued chicken and a life sentence in prison, but you're getting my point. We trust people. All the more should we not trust God. His faithfulness endures forever. He's the perfect witness. He never fails us. Completely truthful. The verses we studied in the last First John session talk about the witnesses and who they are. Go back to uh, five, six, chapter 5, verse 6. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not only by water, but by water and blood, And it is the Spirit who bears witness, because the Spirit is truth. 
So you have one of the witnesses right there, the, the Holy Spirit. For there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. And these three are one. And there are three that bear witness on earth, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And these three agree as one. So we have the Word of God the Father. We have the written Word itself. We have the Holy Spirit, and He is bearing witness in heaven and on earth. Then we have the blood and the water. We have the, the birth of Jesus and the death of Jesus. We have the incarnation of Jesus, or some people believe that's the baptism and the crucifixion of Jesus. These witnesses are worthy of your trust. They're worthy of your confidence. Yes, and they pertain to Jesus coming as a man, coming as a person into the world from heaven, but they also pertain to you knowing that you have eternal life. They're worthy of your trust, of your confidence. Search, and you will find that the word of God is a reliable record. It is really surprising to me how many people are just okay with not really researching or studying, and they just believe the words of scoffers, of naysayers, of those who are mocking, and yet they have an agenda for you to follow after them. Instead of finding out, what does the Bible really say? Consider the perfection of prophecy. Consider the testimony of your own conscience. Look at how unrighteousness has wreaked havoc on civilizations for centuries. Consider how the Holy Spirit has convicted you of what is right and what is wrong and repeatedly called for you to repent. Look at the love of Jesus to save us when we were without hope. He is a wonderful witness in every way. His testimony, you'll find truth in it. So trust the perfect witness when it comes to the assurance of your salvation and also when it comes to your continuance in the faith. Second half of nine says, For this is the witness of God, which he has testified of his Son. He who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. So second point, listen to the witness that is within you. Because the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is testifying of Jesus. And he resides inside of you. There's an internal witness, not just an external witness. Romans 8.16 says this, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. If you are a child of God, there's an interaction happening. Your spirit, God gave you a spirit, he created you in his likeness, is bearing witness. The Spirit, Holy Spirit of God is bearing witness to your spirit. He is residing inside of you. And listen, this is so much more than just an emotion. Yes, it's spiritual and it is emotional. But I, I want you to consider all those times when the Holy Spirit has comforted you. You didn't have a reason, an earthly reason, to be comforted. You were in affliction. And the whole, that's real. The Holy Spirit comforted you. When you didn't know the truth, you didn't know what was right, what was wrong, you didn't know which direction to take. He's the Spirit of truth. And he whispered to you, go this way, go that way. This is the way of righteousness. There's an internal witness for the believer. The Holy Spirit residing in you. Yes, he's an impeccable, perfect witness, but he's also a witness that is inside of you. 
You're not just wandering aimlessly. You're being led intentionally by the good shepherd. Now, the enemy, and there is an enemy. The Bible says it's, it's Satan. It's the devil. And he wants you to not cry out to the Lord. He doesn't want you to come and say, Abba, Father. He doesn't want you to, he wants you to be isolated. He wants you to be separate, away from God. He wants you to believe the few doubts that you have about God instead of the thousands of reasons you have to trust him. He doesn't want you to reflect on how the Spirit has led you, but the Spirit will cause you to remember the times when you've been broken only to have God heal you that much stronger. The enemy, and he's an active enemy, he wants your, your times of despair and your times of depression to define who you are. That's what he is saying to me, and that's what he's saying to you. Look, look at how doubtful you've been. Look at how low you've been. Look at how disobedient you've been. That's who you are. Your temptation defines you. Not the victory that you've had. Don't look at those. But look at your defeat, and that's who you are. Instead of being defined by the mercy that you have received from God Almighty. Will we forget who God is to us and who he has been to us? Or will we let that internal witness speak? Yes, I love the witness of others when it testifies of the greatness of God, but you have a witness within you, Christian. Your spirit communing with the Holy Spirit, that's real. I won't let a season of sadness, and we all have them, strip me of the sense that God is mine and that I am his. It's an internal possession. Now, you're not going to sense him 100% of the time, but if he's in you, don't make your life about the times of disconnect and disillusionment. Maybe I need to hear this today. The witness, he's within you. Middle of verse 10 says, he who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed the testimony that God has given his son. Third point, don't call God a liar. To not believe is to say that God is lying. It's not just like, no thank you. Or, sorry, I passed. Like what you say to the solar salesman at Home Depot. No thanks. It's not like that. You know that guy? You just, no thank you, not today. You move on. When you reject Christ, when you choose to not believe in him, you're saying that God is a liar because it doesn't make any sense to say, it's true that Jesus died for me. It's true that he gave his life to rescue me from my sin and give me heaven, but I'm not going to receive it. That is not logical. Now we tell ourselves the lie sometimes that, oh yeah, I can believe it's true, but not receive it. But if you believe it is true, you will receive it. That's the truth. That's what the Bible says. And if you don't receive it, then you're saying, God is not real. God doesn't love me. He didn't make me. He doesn't care for me at all. All I'm going to do is you know, die and rot in the ground. You're calling God a liar if you don't believe. I didn't make that up. It's right here in the word of God, isn't it? All of this is a joke. When a person doesn't believe, that's what they're saying. The testimony of God is not true. Charles Spurgeon said this, the great sin of not believing in the Lord Jesus Christ is often spoken of very lightly and in a very trifling spirit, as though it were scarcely any sin at all. Yet, according to my text 
and indeed, according to the whole of the scriptures, unbelief is the giving of God the lie. And what can be worse? So before you reject, think about the implications of your rejection. Are you willing to call God a liar? That's serious. Will you actually believe the so-called line of reasoning that says it's true, but, but I won't take it? No way. Verse 11, and this is the testimony that God has given us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. Next, see and know real life. See it, know it. What is life? Well, here the scriptures are clearly talking about heaven, about eternal life. And if you have the Son, then you have heaven. If you believe in God the Son, that is Jesus, then heaven is yours. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No Son, no life. If you have Jesus, you have life. I remember when the phrase, get a life, first started. <laughs> At least I think I remember when it first started. It seemed new to me. And at that time, I think it meant, like, get a reason for living. Get, have something in your life that's worthwhile. Find some purpose. I think get a life meant that. I think it was, first I heard it was in the 80s, right? Get a life. And now you hear people say, I don't have a life. And usually what they mean is, I don't have a social life. Like, I don't make time to see people or to interact with people. I don't have those kind of experiences. I'm just, I'm too busy working or whatever it is. And we use it in that regard, right? But the Bible isn't talking about either one of those way of speaking. It's not just get a purpose. Because there are a lot of purposes out there. And you see it. Some people are super driven. Like, wow. They're after, they, ha they have a purpose. They're almost possessed with what they think they're supposed to be doing. Now, it is true that if you believe on Jesus, he'll give you the purpose of glorifying him. And it is true that if you believe upon the name of Jesus, you will have real friends, those that, that love you enough to speak truth into your life. But it's not just talking about that kind of life. It's talking about life forever in heaven, but it's also talking about something right now, something that you have, Christian, right now, and something that if you're not a Christian, you don't have right now. And what is it? Jesus said this in John 17, 3. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That means knowing God, that's life. From now into eternity, walking with him from this day forward into the everlasting. Your communion with God, your walk with God, your relationship with God is proof that you're headed to heaven. Do you have a walk with God? Do you know him? And this is eternal life, that they may know you. Do you know God or do you just know about him? When you hear his voice, when he moves your heart and your mind, you're communing with him. He's a friend to you. Yes, he's the almighty, but he's your shepherd. He's your king. Do you know, Jesus, that is life? Let it bear witness to you of your salvation. He's the perfect witness. I, I, I want to believe him. It's inside of me. I have a, a walk with him. I want to know and live out real life. 
you hear a lot of people all around you say, well, this is life. It's life to be rich. It's life to be famous. It's life to be cool. It's life to be pretty or handsome. It's life. This is life. This is what life's all about. And you know and I know that there's so much emptiness there. But if you've walked with Jesus, if you know him, you know that it's not empty. You know that he is life. You'll hear a lot of answers that attempt to straddle the fence. The question, are you a Christian? And I get it sometimes. They say, I'm trying. If you were to die today, do you think you'd go to heaven? I sure hope so. Those are discouraging answers, aren't they? Those are people that either need to repent and be saved, or people that need assurance of of who they are in Christ. And I don't always know that. Often I don't know, but it's right here in the Word of God. Jesus said, you're either for me or you're against me. So there's only two possibilities. God clarifies that for us for our own good. If you're against God, realize that, but don't stay there. Believe upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. If you're for him, be assured of who you are for and where you're headed. Be certain of your eternal life. There are also those who say, I want to be in, but I don't really know if I am. Well, let me tell you this. If you want in, Jesus will receive you. If you want to be a child of God, if you will believe upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus is not going to say, let me check if I've got an opening. (laughs) He's not. He's not going to say, let me get back to you. I'm going to check your resume. So this thing of like, I want to be saved, but I'm not sure that I am. If you want to be saved, then confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, and he'll receive you. Listen to this. John 16, 37. And the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. English Standard Version says, never cast out. The person who comes to me, I'm not going to turn him away. You know the psalm that's from Psalm 51, 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. Are you humble before the Lord? Are you saying, here's my life, you're you're everything? He doesn't despise that. He receives that. So if you want in, confess, believe. He's ready to to receive you into his arms, to make you his child. So these are, I know that many of you know this, but when you're interacting with people and you're giving them the gospel, when you're preaching the gospel, these lines of reason, well, I want to be saved, but I don't know. Give them those scriptures. I will by no means cast out. And then there are those who think they're headed for heaven on their terms. They insist that they're saved, but they're doing their own will, not the will of the Father. They say they believe, but they're practicing lawlessness, not righteousness. And if any person is in that place where they are supposedly confident of their salvation, but maybe they ought not to be. This is a verse, Matthew 7, 21. Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? They were teachers speaking forth the word of God. Did we not prophesy? 
and cast out demons in your name. They were doing miracles, or at least claiming to do them, and do many mighty works in your name. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So some people use lordship just for lip service. If you have excuses for lax living, you may well have a false confidence in your supposed salvation. And that's a serious thing. Saving faith desires to be excellent for the Lord, not make excuses. Assurance of salvation doesn't cause reckless living, but a continuance in faith. You want to believe. Lord, help my unbelief. Let him receive you. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. There's a certainty, there's an assurance of heaven right there. And that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. Now, assurance of salvation, fifth point, means that we should come boldly into his presence before the Lord. And this means on the day of judgment, but it also means that you and I can come right into God's presence with confidence. Now, this is not confidence in self. This is not confidence in what we've done. Instead, it's confidence in what Jesus has accomplished. This boldness coming into the presence of God is not at all based on, on who we are, that we've earned our way into the throne room, into his courts, into his presence. But since you have assurance of salvation, come into his presence with confidence, with boldness. Turn back in your Bible to the last chapter, chapter 4, to the previous chapter, I should say. 1 John four seventeen. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves torment. I am anticipating seeing Jesus. I'm not mortified of it. I'm not filled with terror. Is that because I've lived so much love towards him? No, it's because he's given so much love to me and I've received it. Are you anticipating? Are you today coming boldly into the presence of God? Is your relationship with God something that you use? I think about Esther. At the end of chapter four in the book of Esther, she's about to do something that is very, very bold. She's gonna go into the presence of a wicked king. King Ahasuerus. It's her husband, but she's about to do something that is technically illegal. It's against the law. You couldn't come to the king unless he called for you to come to him first. You couldn't initiate it. That was, that was the law of the Persians. And so she tells Mordecai, tell all the people to pray and to fast for three days. Nothing to eat. Don't even drink anything. And I'll do the same thing. And I'll tell my maidservants to do the same thing. So here's the queen. She's going to go into the presence of a wicked king. He's, he's not a godly man. And she, before, when she makes this commitment to, to come in, she says, if I die, then I die. That's a, 
a lot of confidence. If I perish, then I perish. Like, this is what I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to come in boldly. And then as you get into chapter five of Esther, she's, after the fasting's over, she puts on her royal robe and, and the king sees her and he holds out his scepter, golden scepter for her to come. And he, she finds favor in his eyes. If Esther had the boldness and the obedience to come into the presence of, of a wicked king and say, if, if I die, I die, all the more you're coming into the presence of Almighty God who gave his son to buy your way into his presence. He wants you there. Come and commune with him. You and I don't have to come in trepidation and in fear saying, well, I don't know if he loves me. Perfect love casts out fear. I know he loves me. And as broken as I am, I just keep coming back to him. If I confess my sin. He's faithful and just to forgive me and to cleanse me. Here I am, Lord. I, I come in boldness, and it's not because of my own righteousness. It's because of your perfect righteousness. Are you there? Are you coming in and communing with that confidence and that boldness? I'm here because I'm your child. I'm here because I'm your purchased possession. What a precious thing to be. What a precious thing to know. Do you know that you belong to him because he gave his life for you on the cross? Do you know that you have new life because he rose from the grave? Do you need to return to that? Is, is it like something where you're like, man, I just, I got lost in, in the shuffle. I'm, I'm not coming boldly into his presence. I don't have this confidence. I'm, I'm filled with all these doubts that are coming in from the enemy. And instead of walking in this confidence of heaven, I'm walking in defeat. Today is the day for the continuance. So I say, finally, the final point, number six, consider continuing in the faith. Or I should say, continue in the faith. When I was looking at commentaries about the end of this verse 13, I was struck by how many commentators just completely ignored the twofold purpose stated in 13 talking a lot about knowing that you have eternal life, which is definitely there and definitely important, but not a whole lot about continuing in that belief. If you know that you have faith in the Lord, then continue in that faith. We're told to do that here in the word of God. You don't have assurance to do nothing. You have assurance so that you can take action. It's not supposed to be like, I know I'm saved, now I can just coast. No, it's not going back to my terms of being right with God or any of that. It's like, you establish me in this faith, and I want to continue in this faith. I don't have confidence in myself, but I have confidence in you, Lord. And that's why I know you're taking me to the end. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12, middle of the verse from the old King James says, For I know whom I have believed, and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him, against that day. I know where I'm going. I know who holds me. I know who saved me. And he's going to bring me through, make me a person who continues in faith. This day, um, Ethan's going to get baptized. I'm rejoicing for that. But being baptized is a commitment. I mean, you make the commitment before the Lord, but you're making the commitment before men. Like, this isn't just my life when I feel like it. I'm a new person. I don't just serve God when it's convenient for me. I'm dead to self and alive to God. 
Everything's been revolutionized about me because of Jesus. I'm walking in, my, in his strength, not in my own. The old me is dead and the new me is alive in Christ. This is a statement of salvation. It's, it's to say, I am identifying with the death and resurrection of Jesus. He puts the old person down and he lifts the new person up. He's the one. I don't battle the flesh. I don't battle my old ways and, and I don't put my old self down in my own power. I cannot do that. But I'm living in victory. When you make a commitment, when you have a renewed sense of submission to the Lord, when you repent, the enemy is right there to whisper in your ear that you've made the wrong choice. He's right there to distract you. And I'm saying this to you guys right now instead of out there under the porch. Jesus went into a time of extreme temptation in the wilderness after he was baptized. And I was talking with the other pastors and elders. We see this more often than not. Somebody gets baptized and we don't see him for a long time. Oh, that's just one indicator. That's just coming to church. They're probably doing great. They're probably not. God built the church for you to be a part of it, for you to serve the church, for you to be served by the church. He wants to pull you away from God's people. And when we say, I belong to the Lord and he belongs to me, I'm in his family, the devil doesn't want that. And he comes after people and they act kind of shocked, like, whoa, I just can't believe that. Are you ready for that? Because if you're not ready, chances are you'll lose. So be praying for Ethan. I love the, the stand. I love the obedience. It's all over God's word. But it's also for us to come around each other and, and say, we're supposed to be here to remind each other of just the things that we've studied in God's word today. We're not just here disconnected. I show up. I, I do my duty. This is the least painful place for me to go. You know, I ask people about our church. Why do you like it? Well, you're like the shortest preacher I've ever heard. Like, you, you, you get it done in like 35 minutes. I mean, that's like at least 15 minutes less than the other guy. That's less painful. I mean, come on, really. Are we not a body? Did God not put us together so we could spur each other on in the faith? He did. Lord, I, I stand here right now with, with an assurance that I know I don't deserve. I stand here right now with a confidence not in myself, Lord, but a confidence in you. I, I know, Lord, that there'll be a day when I see you with, with these eyes. My faith will become my eyes. There'll be no more sickness, no more sorrow, no more pain. And oh, what hope, oh, what promise I have because of your grace in my life. How wonderful it is to be here today and to stand here today with so many brothers and sisters, and we're here boldly, Lord. We lift up our heads to you because you're the one who paid for our sins, and we rejoice in you. We, we're glad. We're overwhelmed to be forgiven. We, we pray for those that are especially struggling today, that your spirit would comfort them, your spirit would convict them, that they would receive admonishment as, as well as as the exhortation that they need. I pray for those who won't believe in you, Lord, that today they would believe, that they wouldn't 
put it out of their mind that they would be willing to come face to face with you, Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. And when the truth is, is right there before them, they would just say, yes, I'm yours, Lord. I, gi- I give you my life. I-, I pray that they would see that love among us, not just a message, but a real action of love that, that we're yours. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.